0: that is quiet at a time when things are so loud, that does take time, and in a period where things are supposed to be quick, that does suggest how other people live in their skins, because the lyric poem is the angle of vision from the personal point of view, at least traditionally, and other people are both different and the same as you.
1: And welcome to Ears Wide Open, a podcast that is a project of The Open Book, the world's most beautiful secondhand bookshop at 201 Ponsonby Road. Today we have Dr. Brian Walputt with us, Associate Professor of Creative Writing at Massey Albany. Hello. Hi, Alan. How are you? I'm
0: well. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic to have you. Brian and I have known each other a very long time because I worked for you once. yes. Back teaching. in the day. Yeah, in 2004 or 5, we think. In the distant past. That's right. In the we fog were both of time. Young and had yeah. few responsibilities.
0: Yeah, it, sounds, it feels like <laughs> no responsibilities looking back. Yeah, now. That's
1: right. Uh, responsible only <laughs> to poetry. That's right. At that time. Uh, so, uh, you are going to read us a poem, sure. I believe.
0: Sure. This poem is from my most recent collection, Native Bird, which is uh, with Makaro Press. And the poem is called. Uh, Shoes, And I think maybe it's appropriate, uh, given our growing responsibilities. Shoes. How they make their way toward the back door. A row of them, his, hers, each day picked up, placed in a closet rack. Pair after pair, they return as if willed, as if marking a thing in the heart left undone. This pair wants the garden, this the rain, this the feet prowling the carpet, late, baby in arms, a creature unable to walk or to crawl, yet who knows she wants to be moved to sleep, rests only in motion from one room to the next, will recall nothing of these days of pure need filled only by those who want nothing more than to get through each cry to the swinging bridge of silence before the next, nothing more than to move this moment except perhaps to hold it Like this swaddled bundle she takes so he might wash a dish, fold a shirt, put away shoes, unaccountably returned, open-mouthed, as if surprised by their own hunger. This pair wanting the puddle, this the hard slap of stone, the run across against the light, the wait up for me, guys, that that's my cab, this is my life, I will not look back. Beautiful. Thank you.
1: I don't have a, a, the questions I sent you didn't start with this question, but I'm going to throw you one off the cuff since you chose to write, read that poem. Okay. So talk to me about writing about having children.
0: Sure. Well, it gives it gives you a whole other universe of things to write about. Um, it's interesting because prior to that, a lot of my poems were about uh, my parents, right? So it was sort of looking back, and now I had to sort of look uh, at the present, and uh, with some fear and trembling at the future. So it definitely changed my orientation. Um, it gave me a lot more to worry about, as you know, and um, there's just a lot there to to think through, and it changes so fast. So there's plenty to write about. Um, I, uh, I dedicated the book to to my kids. Um, and uh, they're they're, you know, slightly embarrassed by that, I think the the funny part is you know my, my kids were quite so three years ago they were quite young still and there's at the beginning of the book there's a um, Eileen Duggan epigraph and my son was reading through the books and went book and went this is my favorite poem <laughs> he chose the Eileen Ruff. Duggan rough. i like, okay, well done. Yeah.
1: Okay. Oh, well, she's a you know, she's a uh, matriarch of New Zealand <laughs> yes, poetry. Yeah. So. so it was
0: appropriate that he, I said good taste, but uh, thanks kid. Yeah, that's
1: right. Well, they do challenge you, don't they? And have they read your, so they have read your poems, so what did he have to say about it?
0: Well, he was quite young. He didn't understand the poems at that time, but I he has heard me read a couple of times and there are a couple of poems that he really liked. Um, and there was one that I read he didn't like as much and he he's a very, uh, um, blunt, you know He's kind of like an editor This one works, this one doesn't work right. Dad, I was like, okay, thanks for that
1: And how does he feel about being in the poems? Has he thought about that?
0: I don't think he's thought about it that much um, Or my daughter, who's a couple of years older um, Who also has not really read uh, My book, my poems Any of my books um, I, I think I like to think that it's going to be a little gift for them When they get older I think when they're older And I'm an uh, old man or gone, they're going to they're going to have something to look at that came from my brain, and I think it'll be interesting to them as adults. Yeah, I hope, I'm sure I hope. it will be. You know.
1: How would you were your parents writers?
0: No, no. My mom's um, an advanced practice nurse. My dad's an engineer. Uh, it Turns out my dad is also a watercolor painter, which uh, he discovered uh, in retirement. He retired kind of early, discovered that he really enjoyed that, so he. He sort of has the art thing. I remember when I was, I was a journalist, and then I said I was going to go back and get my, my MFA, my Master in Fine Arts and Poetry. And my dad reacted two ways. He went, neat. Wait, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> so this has all been sort of new for them, but they've always been very supportive.
1: Yeah. And what do you think? Will your children turn out to be writers, do you think?
0: Um, they're both good writers. Um, my son doesn't really think of himself as a good writer, but he is. My daughter, it comes very naturally to her and um, uh, is a very good writer, and I think she will in somehow or another be writing. But right now she seems to be leaning towards science.
1: Right. And do you fear, should they become poets, do you fear their poems about their parents?
0: I don't fear them. I it's inevitable that I fear uh, <laughs> my children's poems. I, I mean, can feel them coming to get me. <laughs> you know, I'm sure it would be very interesting. I'm, I, you know, I, I actually see it happening. I'm like, I'm the, becoming the crazy dad. I'm becoming the one they talk about. You know, who was who was nuts. And I, so, yes, it'll come out if they write. So let them go into science. I say. Oh yeah, that's
1: right. Send them into science. Chop off <clears> their <throat> fingers so they can't write poems. So the question that I had planned out to start with for you, so you've got a book out called Poetry and Mindfulness. Right. Which argues that poetry is important and deserves a place in the academy and in society uh, because it sharpens our senses for daily living in the world. Have I summarised that somewhat accurately?
0: Uh, yes. There's, there's. I, I argue that it's more than just sharpening our, our senses, uh, that it does that. Yeah. But it also does several other things. But... Um, tell you who are. Okay, tell um, us where <laughs> are. Sure, um, this, this
1: is the perfect moment. We sure. have a captive audience out there. Right.
0: Okay. So they can't um, switch us off. Well, one thing it does is it 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 changes the way we see the world to some degree. It defamiliarizes the world, makes strange the world. Another thing it does is teaches us to uh, to focus on the journey over the destination. This is particularly true when you're. Uh, when you're learning to write poetry. And my argument in the book isn't just about reading a poem now and again, though I highly encourage that, of course. I, it's it's about a relationship with poetry, um, studying it as a reader or writer. And I, I think everyone should do that. I think everyone should have at least one course. So, So studying it invites you to engage with it in certain ways. And it does, if you're a writer, you have to learn to focus on the process rather than the end goal, right? It also teaches us to... Inevitably, it teaches us to think about what the self is, the I, because you have to think about that when you write, and also because if you take more than one class, or you're ultimately going to end up in literary theory where you have to talk about the self, right? And um, the third thing I, I, I talk about, and I think probably this is in some ways the most important, is it, it teaches us to think in systems. It teaches us to think ecologically, which we have to do if we're going to tackle challenging environmental problems, problems to do with economic disparities, all that sort of thing. From the very first poem, you're learning to read it as a system, how one part is connected or echoes and pinges upon another part, and how that changes the meaning, as opposed to an email or a text where you read it from start to finish, um, and you're not so much thinking of it like a system. The more you you study poetry, the more contexts you build in, the more systems it it sits in. It sits in history, tradition, all sorts of theoretical contexts. And that's great practice for thinking like an ecologist.
1: And how does that differ from a, a good and complex novel?
0: I think that a good complex literary novel does ask that of us. I think there is a poetics to that. And those are the kinds of novels and short stories I love to read. I think that a poem, it, it it doesn't have the linearity, the melody of plot to carry you through. And so in a way it... Melody
1: re- or also melody, right? The illness of plot. Oh, right. The great, <laughs> yeah, melody, the right. great trouble of plot. That's right. The profluence <laughs> yes. and the
0: difficult. And so it it without that to hang on to, you really do have to kind of grasp all the aspects, the systems. In addition, poems can be... Uh, some of them can be quite accessible, narrative, scene-based, but others can be much more challenging in terms of finding a place to grip onto and hold onto. And so you really do have to think about it as a system to, to grasp grasp the meaning of it uh, in a way that perhaps say, you don't with a novel. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, before we started, I was just saying to Brian, uh, my, my day job, which is being a... Corporate strategist really involves trying to understand systems and trying to get people to think about systems, and that it feels in many ways very similar to writing poetry to me, which people look at me like I'm clearly crazy when I say that. But it is about gathering things together, putting them in context, and somehow transferring sense um, through what you convey. So it does feel similar to me.
0: And actually, that, that's what I was thinking when you told me that. And that's exactly what I argue in the book is that it has implications beyond the classroom. You don't have to become a poet. You can become a CEO, a corporate strategist. You can become a politician, anything. And it has implications.
1: This infomercial for writing at Messi has right. been brought to you. Yes, that's especially if you <laughs> but a course at Massey. You're, you're, that's yeah, right. That's that right. will particularly be amazing for you. So I wondered then, how does poetry help you live in this challenging world that we have
0: How does it help me live personally? Yeah. Um, Yeah. What
1: does it do for you?
0: Well, one thing it it does is produce a great deal of intellectual and emotional uh, pleasure. And sometimes I I remind students, if we're dealing with a a challenging poem, I'm like, try to remember that this is fun. (laughs) You know, let's not forget that this is fun. You know, before someone notices that you're getting credit for this, enjoy it.
1: Uh, What do they say?
0: They laugh. You know, I mean, it's often we're doing like like, shake, a Shakespeare sonnet. I'm like, you have to understand he didn't make a lot of money from this. He did it because it was fun. And I think they don't often think of it that way initially. They I'm just like, did
1: it to, he just did it to harass them. Right, he harassed on. them.
0: They're <laughs> going to really drive, I'm driving crazy in a few hundred years. Oh. It's what's more thousand there. It, it, it's just a source of great pleasure. You know, it's Emily Dickinson's quote, uh, if it feels like it took the top of my head off, it's poetry. You know, that kind of thing. So that's one thing it does. Another thing it does is it's quiet, and it requires just quiet thinking and concentration, which is harder and harder for a lot of us to do. Well, definitely for me, I've noticed the effects of uh, the distraction of the internet. I've noticed that it takes me longer to settle down, that it's harder for me to read for a long time a a challenging argument, and that, that worries me. And so I think it's a really great touchstone for being still. But it also does a lot of the things that I argue in the book. Um, you know, when I read an ode by William Stafford, a uh, poet on garlic, and I see garlic differently because he's talking about the communal, um, the communal memory we all have, and he connects it to that. When I, when I read a, par- a poem by Mar- Mark Doty about um, uh, a whale in the harbor called Visitation, I thought of it when the whale went into the Wellington Harbor. I was like, oh, perfect time for this poem. Do really, you
1: share poems that are like? Do you share poems with people when you go? Oh, I need to just. I just need to send you this.
0: I do occasionally, but not very much lately. Right. Yeah, I, I. don't. It's funny. I'm self conscious about sending poems to people. I feel like I feel like I should be asked probably, so I don't impose it on people. It depends. Right. Okay. It's interesting. I haven't really been thinking about that, but people do so much reading. There's so much going on in people's lives that I sort of feel like, am I adding one more burden to them? you know, by giving them a poem. So I don't do it as much as perhaps I used to when I was was new and completely, you know, I had to shout it from the rooftops about poetry. So now I do it a little less and probably I should start again. Um, but anyway, so odes in particular, they, you know, they, they, make, they change the way you see. Oh, so that Mark Doty poem, it's about a whale, but it turns out to be about joy. And he sees joy. The whale is sort of like a metaphor for joy and it concludes... What, did you think joy was some slight thing? It's like, oh, I I see whales differently. I see joy differently. I see the world differently. And Alan Shapiro, which is a a poem called Sunflower, uh, where he takes issue with William Blake's characterization of the sunflower as sort of frail. Want me to read that? Yeah, I do. Okay. We
1: had oh. sunflowers growing out of the back of the bookshop uh, last summer. So there's a beautiful garden. Those of you who haven't been here, there's a beautiful garden, which is my other job in the shop. I do the podcast and I do the garden. Perfect. And we had these sunflowers and they were so tall and so... But they just stood up to... There was storm after storm, like big mm. summer storms. And they were still there. And we kept looking at the back and going, oh, yeah, the sunflowers are still good. You know, it was Survivors. incredible. They really were. Well, that's our
0: Shapiro season. season. <clears throat> so Blake, he starts with Blake's... Um, Uh, epigraph from Blake's poem. that goes, Ah, sunflower, weary of time. And so he, he then resists Blake. This is what he says. No pitying, ah, for this one. No weariness about it or wanting in the upward heave of its furred stalk, curving and opening out into a cup of pointy leaves, each leaf alert with tiny quills, spines, prickles. Did I say cup of leaves? Say shield instead. Say living crucible from which flames burst with such sticky brightness that they suck sunlight down into the inflorescent burning pit of itself. Did I say sunflower? Say instead, don't ever mess with me. Say, there is nothing I won't do to live. That's just amazing, and you see it differently. So that's one of the things poems do for me.
1: Yeah, me too. I just, you know, I, I do share poems with people sometimes when I Either I come across something and just I'm like oh my god this is incredible or mm. uh, you know part of a conversation mm. something and I think oh this is you know this reminds me of this poem here I have this poem to think about the world with that's great yeah I, I take a lot of screenshots off my phone you know I look them up on the internet and I screenshot them and whatsapp them to people so they're kind of right there when well, I
0: need them, you know, you're inspiring me to maybe get back into that. So watch out, people. That's I'm, right.
1: We're, we're going to spam you with poetry. I'm spam with
0: poetry. That's right. <laughs> I guess I should do that more.
1: Well, it's nice. I like it if you for the right people, right? You send it to the wrong people, and they just go, "Wow." Well, otherwise you he
0: send me this? That's yeah. right.
1: I don't know what this thing is. <laughs> so my second question, I'm quite. I want to quote Ronald Reagan of all people. Please do.
0: <laughs> every every day is so much a quote, Ronald. <laughs> oh well, <Reagan>. that's right. <laughs> and,
1: you know, the world we live in now, we think. ah, Hucky wasn't so bad after all, was he, right?
0: No, no, now he looks golden. Compared to where we are now. Bloody amazing.
1: Anyway, so he said, if you're explaining, you're losing. And as regular listeners of this podcast have probably picked up, I've got a history as a debater. Mm. And it's very clear when you go into an argument with people that actually that's true. You really have to hold a very firm line on some kind of absolute if you want to win, you know. And the Mm. more you get down and sort of scrap around the details, the more likely you are to lose. So I wondered about... In this book, you sort of put forward this argument in favour of valuing poetry for all the reasons that you've just discussed with us and and you talk about it as a performing of our finding beauty and meaning. And I think that those are kind of amazing things to say. But I wondered, and this sort of goes to the point of if you send a poem to the wrong person, they'll just go, eh, whatever. You know, <laughs> is that something that people who don't already get it are ever going to pick up? And And then secondly, you know, just to not, Give you too easy a time. Sure. What would the world lose if poetry were? Lo- you you're sort of defending it as if you fear it will be lost. What do you fear will be lost?
0: Okay, good questions. Uh, There's several several aspect aspects of those of those questions. If you're if you're explaining, you're losing. Well, I mean, I, I've devoted my my professional life to explaining. Right. What, what I've discovered is people come into into a class with all sorts of preconceptions about poetry it must be centered yeah on the page (laughs) yes it must be centered that is absolutely one preconception people will let not let that go um but in addition to the centered poems they you know they they're often afraid of it and i get these i get these uh comments sometimes and it's fairly often you know, I, I was going to leave this class. I was going I didn't realize this introductory class had poetry in it. I thought it was just going to be fiction, and I was going to leave, but now I, I really like writing poetry. Thank goodness. I stayed in the class. And so I had to explain it, you know, for them to understand it because they have preconceptions about it or don't know anything about it. And I think people in general can get it if they're exposed, sorry, if they're exposed to it. So, um, they have to uh, so explaining I think is is a necessary part of exposing people to things they don't know about or have misconceptions about or have had a bad experience about in a classroom once. So I you know so that that's my take on that Ronald Reagan but but in terms of uh, you know sort of the social argument and are we losing and what are we losing I fear we are losing. But it's not it's not that poetry is losing though of course poetry is enriched the more people who talk about it and write it so It does lose when fewer people are involved in it. But I think we all lose when we don't have a comfort with and experience with a a form of, of art, a form of writing that is quiet at a time when things are so loud, that does take time and in a period where things are supposed to be quick, that does suggest how other people live in their skins, because the lyric poem is the angle of vision from the personal point of view, at least traditionally, and other people are both different and the same as you. And I think when we lose touch with that, we all lose something, and the society loses something.
1: So what do you think about the phenomenon of, for instance, Instagram poets, and people who actually have, I mean, huge followings?
0: Yes, yes. He used to
1: drink some wine before I comes out to yes. this Yes, yes. I, when I see some of those numbers... Fortify self.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, anytime I see someone successful writing poems, I am very happy. When people are engaging with the poems, I am very happy. So I think that's a good phenomenon. It, it does seem that, although I said I fear we're losing, it does seem that you know, you, you step on the balloon in one place and the air moves to the other. And it does seem to come out. It comes out in spoken word. It comes out in Instagram poets. It comes rap. out in different places, rap, all those Popular things. Music. Absolutely. Yeah. These are all forms of poetry. That being said, sometimes I think I wish these poets were more formally engaging in the craft.
1: By which you mean beta. better poets. I, I
0: guess sometimes <laughs> I wish they were a little better. Yeah. I mean, better is a tough, you have to stand somewhere aesthetically. And where you stand is shifting to Shifting Sands. Yes, sometimes I look at them, I'm like, it's great that you're doing this. But you know, if you took a class with other people engaged in it, I think you would benefit from the enriching experience of the long tradition and history of poems. And the other people in the room were as passionate as you are about, and, and you'd be able to go somewhere new. But you know, I think of that as a poet, I think of it as a teacher. But I, you know, I'm delighted when anyone's engaging in it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel probably that more people are reading and writing poetry than ever before. I mean, purely as a factor of having so many more people in the world, you know, Mm. but even as a percentage of people. And and I'm always a little bit suspicious of this kind of sense of, oh, there was some cultural golden age, Mm. you know. But I do also agree. I mean, you know, I'm going to say I'll hold myself out as a poetry snob and say, well, actually... I practice this as something that is embedded in what has come before. And if I always think if I had to give up reading or writing poetry, I would give up writing poetry Mm. because I care more about the incredible poetry that exists in the world than I care about creating my own. Mm. And people who fall on the other side of that divide, I think, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not so on board with that. But that's actually part of the culture and those text constructions that people are offering each other you know people really relate to mm. and at funerals yeah. at weddings yeah yeah
0: that's when you're called upon to bring a poem yeah, yeah. those kinds of they, they, people want that absolutely absolutely yeah i mean, maybe people are doing it more I, I i think just not in the way
1: we like
0: well i'd, I'd like i'd like more of them to be formally engaging in, i guess so i just feel like one of the things that I do in my classes is try to connect it to tradition and and the conventions throughout history, and say, look, you know, this poem that you're reading, you can actually take a long look back and see where it's coming from. It, it's it's new, but it's not new. Mm-hmm. It may be doing something a little bit different, it's something fresh, but it's coming from a tradition, and let's let's think about that. So,
1: and I love that too, you know. But that's why we are. That's why we do what we do, right? So
0: that's why we do. What we do. Yeah.
1: <laughs> why we're not Instagram poets? Shame.
0: Yeah, so yeah, I should set up an account.
1: You should. We could become poetry influencers. So my third question is about migration and sure. being a writer away sure. from home. So obviously, now what part of the states are you from originally, actually?
0: Okay, so originally I grew up in Baltimore, which right. is the East Coast. It's just yep. north of Washington, the D.C. The Wire, yep. The Wire, exactly. Yes, yes. Um, uh, uh, yep, yeah, which I did get addicted to.
1: Yeah, me too. I wasn't
0: sure I wanted to go back there, but yeah, there. Uh, but I did get addicted to that show. It was great. But don't get me started. Yeah, Baltimore. And then I uh, actually lived in various places in the East Coast, but Baltimore kept coming back to Baltimore. And then uh, I went to Colorado for um, uh, graduate school and then, uh, yeah, and then came here after that with my wife.
1: And you started out here living in Palmerston North?
0: Yes, lived in Palmerston North for just about 13 years and then moved up in 2016 to Auckland.
1: Wow. Big lights, but only to Albany. <laughs>
0: um <laughs> Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> you don't one, want to go one, too fast. One, step, one step at a time.
1: That's right. We're here in Ponson. Yeah. It looks a little yeah. uncomfortable. It's really
0: interesting, you know, to be in, <laughs> to be. Yeah, what are all these shops? Um, if you if you leave Massey, Albany, you go right and you're in Mega Mall. You go left and you're in water tanks. You're back in Palmerston North. You're back in the Manwha too. So it's a really interesting spot. It's right at the edge. Yeah.
1: The company I work for has an office out there, actually, our satellite mm. office. I've been out there about recently. So, I wanted to know the story of how you came here. And also, you've got a poem which is called Worries About My Daughter in a Foreign Tongue, Mm. um, which I think is a great title. And it's part of a series of poems about your kids in New Zealand. And you say, The strange tongue pressed into her mouth, the familiar made strange, colour steel, colour, flat out, paddock, the number eight, the sheer edge of water, the songs I don't understand her tongue become foreign. Mm, And there's an anxiety there, I think, obviously, in the title, about raising your children in a foreign place.
0: Yes. Well, it's not foreign to them, right? So, um, they... uh, So how did I get... Well, first of all, how did I get here? I had finished my uh, graduate study and my my doctorate and was looking for a job. And my wife was finishing her doctorate in ecology. Um, And... She, her uh, sister had lived in New Zealand for six years. She'd been married to a New Zealander. And uh, my wife had been to New Zealand and loved it. And she'd always wanted to sort of live abroad.
1: It's nice here for our international audience. Very nice. It is very nice. But it's pizza of nice.
0: Um, yeah, we could talk about that sometime. About <laughs> the press. So uh, this, someone sent me this job ad, which I hadn't seen. And I thought, you know, I'm going to apply for this job. I'm never going to get it, but it'll make, my, make Nancy happy that I, that I applied. And then I got the job. And we're like, okay, so we have no kids at this point. We have no mortgage. We need work. Let's go. Let's try it. And it was very surreal. But uh, that's that's how we got to uh, New Zealand.
1: And what did you think when you were landed there in Palmerston North, in the uh, middle of the North Island, teaching <laughs> business students how to re- write poetry, read and write poetry? Ah,
0: paradise. This is what I want. I was really happy to be here. It was disorienting. We went from a place with 300 days of sunshine... <laughs> to Palmerston North, where it rained a bit, very green. Very uh, green, very green. (laughs) You You don't want
1: to upset the home audience, do you? Anyone down there who's listening, it's very green. Look,
0: Palmerston North was very, in many ways, very good to us and it was a great place to to have the young kids. But it was was a bit of an adjustment, I'll I'll say that.
1: And so raising your children as two Americans, Mm -hmm. raising two Kiwi kids, right?
0: Yes, though, you know, we became citizens as soon as we could the kids were citizens immediately right and we became citizens and as students as we could which is 2007 we we do consider ourselves new zealanders and um, that's
1: you know as america historically has been and as new zealand historically has been you can arrive and become a new zealander
0: yes and and we i mean so we're 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 both we're americans we're new zealanders um and in terms of the anxieties i guess my I think this is a really good place for them to be, a really good place for them to be raised in many ways. I I guess my anxieties have to do with um, their not being able to have a daily relationship, you know, or weekly relationship with their grandparents or a regular relationship with their cousins. It takes a lot more work. And um, I also want them to be connected to American history, so we worked hard to give them some of that uh, through books and museum trips when we when we're in the states visiting and uh, things like that and that that's been somewhat successful. So um, how do
1: they position themselves? Do you think? How do they think of themselves?
0: I think they think of themselves as both, but probably more New Zealanders. Their accents are more New Zealand than they are American. Though you know, if you hear them, you might say they sound American. You know, someone in the States hears them, they they sound New Zealand, it's that kind of situation. They they have both of our Vocabulary. They have the New Zealand vocabulary. When when there's a difference, you know, rubbish, trash, that sort of thing.
1: I just I remember getting terribly told off in a writing class in Iowa for having a bench in the kitchen. What is a right, bench I, doing
0: I, in the kitchen? Well, you know what? And a bench
1: had to break that you never can speak when your story is being spoken about. Rule and say that's
0: what we call a countertop. You just get that out. Of, you, know, you let them know. You know, <laughs> they're a little bit confused about the symbol of the bench. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, when we first uh, when we first moved here, we we actually lived. Um, as, as flatmates with, with someone and we're in the kitchen working in the kitchen and he said put it on the bench and I'm like what bench are you talking about it's like what do you call it I call it a counter and, and also we, we talked about the, um, uh, the market garden and I said what's a market garden and he said you know you, you buy your it's on the side of the road you buy vegetables and fruit he said what do you call it I said we call it a farm stand and he said ah farm stand how quaint <laughs> well
1: it's not a farm it doesn't have any animals on it
0: that's right that's right. It's, it's called a farm. You know, it's a vegetable. For, I don't know what to say. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they call it. Yeah, yeah. It's um, fascinating, isn't yeah. it? But uh, so, you know, I have some anxieties about uh, where will we be and where will they be. And, but I think it's, it's kind of a. Are your
1: gift. family trying to do chain migration into New Zealand and escape from the States at this point?
0: I have no comment on that. <laughs> no, no, we don't. We, <laughs> we do joke about, you know, we need a compound for, for people to come over. But no, no one's. Uh, no one's actually seriously suggested it. They haul up at our house.
1: One day maybe, though. Yeah. So there's a poem you've got in this book called Objective Correlative. I find that word really hard to say, mm. so excuse me, everyone, if I've said that incorrectly. In which you are writing a poem about writing a poem. Right. And in the poem, you are trying to work out whether the poem should have a shear water or a petrol in it as the best representative of what's going on and so you bring the concept of objective corral- corral- mm, I mm. can't say it if you know what I mean you know what I mean if not, just, just mm. you know um, skip this bit uh, the thing that represents the idea into question so I feel as if the poem is saying hold on a minute what are we even doing here you know I can pick it's a petrol or a shear water what does it mean and a line that you have that I love says pages are not birds only birds are birds so I wanted to ask you, what does imagery do for us in poetry? What work are the birds and native birds doing?
0: So, well, images do a number of things, but they, they are often a, a lens through which to deal with something else, probably most frequently. They're, they're ways of perceiving the world that suggest our mindset, our emotional state, but they're also Ways of getting it something at a slant, and I think that's definitely true of the, the birds and native bird. What they are not are necessarily accurate representations by an active birder. Um, people will will occasionally say, oh, "You must be a, a birder because it says it says uh, you know a uh, beginner's guide to birding is this ongoing title." And I'm like, uh, I always feel like I'm disappointing them. I'm like, no, I like birds, but uh, you know. I'm an active poet. Yeah, I'm, um, That's I'm right. not a bird. Uh, That's And yeah. right. um, it was really more just a, a, an interest that I started to pursue and started to realize that I was pursuing without realizing it until I realized it. And then I started pursuing it more actively. You know, the, the names, the, the habits, the, the, the birding sites, where they, the bird sites where they gave you really interesting histories. Um, and so there are ways of looking at other things like migration. That's one of them.
1: And what is the sense for you when you realize that you found the right image? How do you know?
0: How do I know? That's a good question. Um, I, I don't know if it's a matter of finding the right image or just beginning with an image and playing with it until it is right or isn't. How do I know it, though? It just feels right. I mean, I wish I could articulate a, a more academic response. What
1: do you say to your students about
0: this? I usually say, oh, it looks like we're out of time. We should... You know, what I tell my students is, when it comes to imagery, is that the images should, be, should matter and that they should play a function. Images can sometimes simply provide uh, texture such that you know where you are in a poem you know there could be coffee hissing you know the the machine because you're in a cafe and that that that's fine but the the images the main images should do some work and they're often perceptual work it's what you notice and how you describe it says a lot about what you're thinking at that moment and that's that's what i suggest about image
1: yeah i say the image is the philosophy hmm so you can't say three big philosophical ideas one after the other and say that's a poem, unless you're an absolute genius which, you know, none of us are right? But if you find the right images (laughs) um, then you can actually work those ideas in because the image has earned the philosophy, the concrete has given you the license to do the abstract.
0: That is the first step right? The first step is concrete over abstract. There are abstractions in poems but First let's let's go as concrete as we can and see where that takes us. And uh it it takes us to interesting surprising places. Yeah.
1: So talk to me a little bit more about teaching. What what do you try and convey to your students and how has this changed? So I was interested in this. I just give the the listeners a little bit of context. When I worked for Brian, I got a book of his essays, uh, not his essays, sorry, his lectures, which I was to read to the students, and which I dutifully did. Oh, poor um, thing. Because, <laughs> little that because that's um, the sort of person that I am. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, you were a young teacher of poetry at that time. And mm. So was I, absolutely. And you've gone on to carry on teaching poetry for now many years. What has changed for you in the practice of teaching?
0: I think, you know, the lectures... I still approach things uh, in, in, in sort of those units of image and metaphor and sound and that sort of thing. But I think what, what has changed more is my, you know, the primary teaching is in workshop, right? The lectures, that, that was meant to contextualize, um, give people a vocabulary, a way of reading. But uh, in workshop, when I think back, you know, when I started teaching twenty years ago, creative writing, I, I don't, I'm sort of afraid of what I might have done. But I, I you think... know, Flannery <laughs>
1: O'Connor was asked, "Do you think that writing workshops stifle writers?" And she said, "Not enough of them." Not enough.
0: Of them. That's right. That's right. Well, that's not true about Massey, though. I should say. Um, but I you th- stifle <laughs> all of them. Anyone who comes to Massey will be stifled on the spot. So basically, I think I focused a lot more on the uh, on the trees. And now I focus more on the forest. It's funny because I had a teacher during my MFA, uh, Stanley Plumley, and he used to say something. He used to say, ah, it's never about the writing. And I thought, what are you talking about? But he used to always say, what is this poem about? And a few years after I got here, I went and took a visit home, and I uh, was talking to another friend of mine who also is a teacher of poetry and had taken a workshop with Stan Plumley. And I said, you know what I find myself saying in class a lot? And he said, what's this poem about? And I think that's, that's become sort of central. It's yeah, the writing, you can have beautiful lines. It's not about that. It's what is this poem about? It's an old fashioned question. I think people are sometimes uh, nervous about asking it for seeming old fashioned or crazy or whatever, but it's, it's, it's a really important question, and you know what? It's
1: the same question you have to ask when you're trying to be a corporate strategist. What is this activity about?
0: What's it about? Yeah. What
1: are we? What are we trying to do here? And That's, again, you you can get caught up in beautiful PowerPoint presentations to the end and be like, I, I don't know. Right? What's the center?
0: Yeah. What, what is actually going on here? What's the raison d'être? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's. See, I should have interviewed you for my book. You're just making my case. Yes, absolutely. So. I think one of the main things i've I've changed is really focusing on so I basically you know there are three really major things that I try to get across. One is perception over action. you know there's a tendency, especially if you're if you're a reader of uh, fiction um, when you write a poem to have some sort of action in it, some sort of drama. and I'm like, you know poems are kind of like the Seinfeld. remember Seinfeld has a show about nothing It's like if you you know Someone goes and looks oh, at it.
1: Actually, often about masturbation. Like, let's be fair. And, okay. and poetry goes there a lot as well, I think, in many ways. Um, so your uh, analogy is wonderful. <laughs> I love
0: uh, it. Okay. I, didn't, I wasn't anticipating that. You know, so it's... it's you obviously if haven't if listened you...
1: to many of the previous podcasts because mm. we always get to this eventually.
0: Uh, okay. I'll, <laughs> I, I should have been forewarned. The... the what were we talking about? <laughs> I've lost it. Oh, about nothing. Um, yeah, so there's no drama. Nothing happens in most poems, right? Oh, you look at a flower. Okay. Some bastard eats those plums. Yeah, somebody eats the plums. Okay, it's a little bit of drama. You, know? you anticipate someone being annoyed that they your plums. But it's it's really it's really uh, uh, about perception. It's about the inner life at that moment and what they're feeling. And that's where the strength lies, perception over action. A second thing was that the poem is not just about an experience, a representation of experience. It is a, an experience. Uh, it's a performance and that's, that's a hard one to get.
1: But so important.
0: Very important. That you're not just writing about something that happened to you. The poem itself is an experience you're providing. And sometimes, we, you know, you, I might have even then had an E. Cummings poem, which is impossible to even read out loud. And what it's about is completely inseparable from the experience of reading it. You would, couldn't possibly summarize it. And so the third one is emotional center, right? <clears throat> Where I say, okay, so there, there are two questions about this poem I always ask. What's it about? And What's it about, right? And so it's the emotional center that I, I want people to focus on. So those, those three things I think are increasingly my focus.
1: And how do students respond to that?
0: They respond positively for the most part. I find students to be you know, generally pretty open, interested in engaging it. It takes a while to really get, for example, perception over action, it's not not immediate. And I remember at the end of the second year course, I remember students suddenly going, "Oh, perception over action! I get it!" And I'm like, "Yeah, it does take a while to to get what that means, but when you do, it all seems to make sense." Yeah,
1: that's fantastic. Thank you, Brian. Sure. Um, would you like to read us something else? Have you got another poem to hand? Sure. To wrap up the podcast,
0: I will. I will read. A bird poem, since we talked about that. Since
1: we've spoken of birds.
0: And it also gets to this notion of migration, immigration.
1: Yeah, and I see, I'm looking at the title, so I see that it's perhaps our most evocative bird. The Ruru. Would you say? Yes, I would say so. You hear them calling, and you think, we hear them calling, we live in Newmarket, but we hear them calling in Newmarket Gully, and it's incredible because we're 10 minutes from Auckland CBD. And yeah. we hear the Ruru calling.
0: So you're not so far from Palmerston North.
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Well, it's hard. To, well, my belief is that everyone in New Zealand is secretly from Masterton. Ah, if hey, you ask, yeah. you will find, you know, I a, be a connection to Masterton.
0: So. Okay, so here it is. It's called Ruru. It moves half in this world, half in the next, or in some realm that came before. We all do, perhaps, would know this but for the gnaw of each day, the blindness of that rich text, all we perceive... Even at this late hour, you and I can hear a call shape the air. If only we could be both here and there. If only we might love what would devour all we have been. How stealthily it passed, like blood or a tune while seeming to stay. In the world of the spirit, happy prey must give lives with a will, no questions asked. What took us in its teeth, love, brought us here in some realm of the spirit. All is clear.
1: Thank you, Brian. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. You too, Anna. Uh, This has been Ears Wide Open, a project of The Open Book at 201 Ponsonby Road. If you enjoy this podcast, support us by coming down to The Open Book if you're in Auckland. Or if you're not in Auckland, if you visit our website, you can sign up for our uh, My Book Bag subscription service and get sent wonderful books to your own taste, hand-wrapped in beautiful paper parcels, sealed with wax and delivered to your door.